Stay tuned, because up next is Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the This is Jennifer Stone with um, Stone's Throw, and today is June 12th, June 12th, 2007. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, I, uh, I was breaking up here today, uh, <laughs> something I heard on the news, I'm afraid, on the way down here, I hadn't heard last night's news. I was listening to Mark Miracle. <laughs> he, he's talking about the need for incarcerated women to have women guards, right? Yeah. It was last night's news, I'm sure. Anyway, uh, we all know that the women in prison suffer from sexual harassment from the male guards. And uh, the powers that be apparently said, yes, they were trying to fix that. But... <laughs> Yes, they were going to fix that so there would be women guards to look after the women prisoners. But first, first they want to be sure that the women are, this is a quote, fully protected. Fully protected. Sorry, I just, uh, one more absurdo stupidism on the news and I will crack. I will definitely crack. So I'm going to go just be silly today. I'll talk about, I'll talk about silly stuff. Once upon a time, yes, Tina Brown once upon a time, uh, was the erudite editor of The New Yorker. She gave that magazine much pizzazz, and this week she's got out a new book called The Diana Chronicles. I do not sneer or laugh at uh, the late Diana Spencer. Not anymore. I did once. Uh, anyway, Tina Brown has written this book all about Diana Spencer, the once and future Princess of Pain now dead for a decade. Diana has become a literary lady, a kind of fairy tale, I think of her. Yes. Her ancestor, Edmund Spencer, he wrote, a fairy queen. She's a descended from Elizabethan poets. Anyway, when Diana married Charlie back in 1981, I wrote in the local women's newspaper, Plexus, saying that well, this might turn out to be a fairy tale by the Brothers Grimm. <laughs> uh, Cassandra is my alter ego. What a prophet I was a quarter of a century ago. Anyway, this summer, I guess August, we have the 10th anniversary of the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. And um, all the fuss being made is going to irritate the out of the sort of people who despise celebrity. 
well, they despise celebrity for its own sake, but uh, <laughs> some of us just despise British royals for their sake, yes. But these tales, these stories are part of our pop culture. They have their uses. They are symbolic, uh, sometimes a template for what's going on. I was thinking last night that Diana could serve as a role model for Paris Hilton. Well, she could serve as a moral example. I prefer that word, yes, a moral example. Paris Hilton is incarcerated, um, at least she was last time I looked. She's in, she's out. Anyway, the sheriff tried to save her. He said it wasn't fair. He said the only thing, uh, the only special treatment was that sentence she got, which was unfair, and, you know, 45 days is too long. Anyway, this story, or uh, media extravaganza, reveals a kind of truth. And that truth is that the plebs, the... Ordinary folks, people like me, yes, love to see their betters bleed. Oh, dear, I, I must not say betters. Paris Hilton is not better than the rest of the people. She's just richer. But I love that alliterative sound. Yes, they love to see their betters bleed. Uh, she was quoted, Paris Hilton was quoted on the television last night as saying, quote, she wants to make a difference. She wants to make a difference, you see. Now, that's just like Diana. Mm, Paris Hilton can speak out on the evils of incarceration. She can say, yes, that we need women guards to take care of the women prisoners because the male guards uh, <laughs> have nasty intentions. I'm going to send her a copy of Tina Brown's new book, yes. The Chronicles of Diana. Anyway, Diana Spencer believed in the revolution of touch. She taught uh, Elizabeth II a thing or two. In spite of all her silly stuff, uh, she took a step towards Christ consciousness. That's what it's called. <laughs> it just means being a decent human being. Just one small step for womankind. Princess Di gave it a try. I remember back, uh, oh, ten years ago now, yes, uh, when she died, I wrote a piece for uh, News and Notes, a local women's newspaper of that time. Let's see, ten years ago. It's 97, right? 1997. Uh, I called this piece The New Woman's Broken Heart. As we know, feminism has been in trouble ever since the beginning. It's always in trouble. It's just the way it is. Uh, anyway, the new woman's broken heart seemed to me to sum up the Diana situation. I started this piece with a quote from Thomas Nash. Thomas Nash is uh, an Elizabethan poet, born 1567, died, we think, in 1601. And, yes, he wrote this beautiful poem called Litany in Time of Plague. I keep reading it because it applies to our age. There's just one line for Diana. Brightness falls from the air. 
queens have died, young and fair. Now, that death of Lady Diana Spencer was an Elizabethan tragedy played on the world stage. It was a very theatrical, uh, very theatrical tale. The electronic media is now uh, a real means to create global grief. So all it takes, folks, is the TV. I always dated from the funeral of, uh, or the death, actually, of President Kennedy, but uh, it doesn't matter which particular event you pick. Television has given us this, uh, I guess, call it universal consciousness. Everyone felt they knew what had happened to this woman, what had happened in her life. The symbols were universal. Recognition was instantaneous. Of course, people see things not as they are. We see things not as they are, but as we are. Depends on where we're sitting. Yes, our perspective. Now, partisan perception was evident from the first reports of that car crash in Paris. Every reaction revealed the spectator more than the event. The 15 September issue of the New Yorker, that was in 1997, uh, Salman Rushdie wrote, The pornography of Diana Spencer's death becomes apparent. She died in a sublimated sexual assault. <laughs> Oh, well, guys will be guys. Anyway, that's what Salman Rushdie wrote. I watched the television coverage all alone late at night. I played some old English ballads from the plays of Shakespeare. In my journal, I set down lines from the old Elizabethan tragedy by Webster called the Duchess of Malfi. Cover her face, mine eyes dazzle. She died young. Someone told me that uh, among Diana's ancestors is that Elizabethan poet, right, Edmund Spencer, as I said before, right? His famous work, The Fairy Queen, let's see, that was written in, oh, the second half of the 16th century. Edmund Spencer, born 1552, we think, died 1599, the second half of the 16th century, right? English majors love that stuff. Uh, let's see. I like to think of the Fairy Queen as a lyric evocation of the old religion of the ancient pagan magic before the Celtic twilight that there's such a fuss about, you know. The end of beautiful medieval yes medieval dream yes romance is all very well but as i keep saying i'd love to visit the middle ages but i wouldn't want to go to their dentists diana's mother and her brother uh, were converts to catholicism it always made me think that they were what is it at least tending towards the pagan it speaks volumes to my way of seeing the english with their Anglican angst as a kind of thin veil over their ancient old um, old world beliefs. 
also in the 15th September issue of the New Yorker. There's a rather clinical piece, uh, yes, by the editor, Tina Brown. This is when she started writing about Diana. Uh, uh, she notes that Diana, quote, is almost wholly devoid of irony. How could Charles have known that the demure Deb he married would turn out to harbor a cache of emotions out of Emily Bronte? <laughs> Indeed. Now, what Tina Brown describes as, quote, a quality of driven earnestness is what I would insist is that strange human quality called innocence. Some called Diana naive. I don't see her that way. Although it's vital to remember she was a teenager when Charles proposed. Naivete is of the mind. Innocence is of the spirit. Uh huh. Certainly she was naive, mentally naive at that time. Uh, but innocent she was then and was when she died. I made a list of all the dismissive things said by the male pundits, from William Sapphire to Christopher Hitchens. They're all Christopher Hitchens, yes. Had great contempt for Diana. Uh, and I even noted the loving things said by men like Clive James. Clive James concludes that he has loved the world of women because he feared the world of men. That's not a very comforting resolution. His piece on Diana is called Requiem. And again, that piece can be found in the New Yorker of 15 September 1997. I don't know if you can find that online. I doubt it. It's ten years ago. The women's commentary was more varied, although there was a tendency to explain the depth of feeling, the outpouring of public grief caused by this sad event. Uh, I think um, I explain it as grief for the general malaise, you know. When we're depressed and someone dies, it's kind of like, you know, when you lose a pet or something. Maybe that's too too cruel, but sentimentality comes crashing through. We have this feeling that modern life is loveless and lacking in spiritual values. Apparently, these days, everyone needs an angel. I asked about, uh, well, actually, I asked my friends what they thought. And <laughs> I talked to them about the triple goddess, the maiden, mother, and crone, uh, one of my favorite subjects on KPFA. I said I thought Diana and Mother Teresa, yes, were in some celestial sphere. You remember Mother Teresa died about the same time. <laughs> they went together. I figured the two of them were planning a comeback. The response to these remarks was mixed. Some folks still have uh, the either-or way of thinking. And they thought that, well, either Diana was a fraud or a feminist <laughs> or the worst half of both. Or she was not in the same league with Mother Teresa because she still got her hair done, you know, and had love affairs. No use pointing out that Mother Teresa had 50 years on Diana and that uh, it takes a lot of rehearsal to become yourself, 
Yes, I think Diana was becoming what we call real or authentic. Anyway, once upon a time, uh, let's see, here in the article, I write that back once upon a time in August of 1981, I tried to write a satirical piece for Plexus, that women's newspaper, that take on uh, the wedding of Diana and Charles. And uh, I was particularly snotty in my descriptions of the various older women, the stepmothers and stepsisters, you know, from the cautionary fairy tales, like, like yes, Cinderella's older sisters, all the women who were um, out to criticize her, yes, the... The old queen, now dead, uh, Elizabeth II's mother, had to tell her, you know, uh, about cleavage and not to show too much. Uh, I felt all these older women were collaborators in a virgin sacrifice. My views have softened over the years, although I see the political picture in a much harsher light now. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was the real mom, the one who gave the spankings, you know. Uh, she really belongs in a grim fairy tale, as I watched Elizabeth II on television after Diana's death, trying to say she was sorry without being so hypocritical as to say that she actually loved her daughter-in-law. I felt her pain. You know, that stiff upper lip stuff that comes with the job. However, I think she got the picture faster than uh, Charles. He wanted to have the funeral at St. Paul's. Uh, that's where they buried uh, Winston Churchill. He was not, after all, a royal. Uh, but the Queen's instinct told her that the mother of William and Harry was the blood royal. Come on. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's ancient religion. Anyway, it had to be in Westminster Abbey. Once upon a time, tribal councils, of el tribal councils of elder women chose the kings and chieftains of Britain. Those heathen Wicca inaugurated leaders over sacred stones. Do you remember the speaking stones? Mm -hmm. They spoke aloud, signifying divine acceptance of each new ruler. One such stone is still part of the coronation of British monarchs. It's the ancient stone of scone. It rests beneath the coronation throne in Westminster Abbey. When Elizabeth II was crowned, she did not allow cameras to photograph the moment under the canopy when she was anointed with the holy oil. Now, Elizabeth II must be 80 now. Yes, she's... Uh, well, let's see. When this article was written, she was over 70. And I think it was too much to expect her to empathize with Diana. There was almost as big a generation gap with Charles, if you think about it. They're all products of their own time. Sooner or later, we're all pickled in the values of the past. You remember that the Queen was formed by her experience during World War II. Remember that recent movie we saw her, she... Uh, she was an auto mechanic. Uh, she put on a uniform, drove an ambulance. Um, she was in the British Army, World War II. That was not a play. 40,000 British civilians died in the bombings during the London Blitz. 
I remember an in-law of mine who was a night warden during those years. Uh, it was a defining experience, nothing like, nothing like Diana's life. Uh, Princess Elizabeth had only a few years after the war to enjoy her marriage and children. She became queen in her 20s. Gossip has it that uh, the queen had a randy streak along with her unfailing devotion to duty. As the years passed and her husband, Philip, took his fun where he found it, Liz turned to horsey pursuits. She was still the queen. Perhaps Diana brought home to her the limits of happiness within the married state, yes. For Diana, being a royal was not enough. She wanted real life. As what was called the Queen of Hearts, she could reign over what her brother called her constituency of the rejected, those who felt like outsiders. Since that's clearly the majority on earth, she posed a real threat to the old order. Uh, Mohammed Al-Fayed, the father of Diana's lover, Dodi, uh, leased and restored the home of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor in Paris, and some folks say he was preparing it for his son and Diana. They had stopped by to look at it on their fatal last visit to Paris. Who can say whether or not they might have set up a court of their own in the heart of Europe? (laughs) Anyway, in the end, Diana's death may be her final gift to the monarchy, It's clear that rumors of the fall of the House of Windsor are premature. She gave them her life, her sons, and the vitality some people call glamour. Ah, yes, the glitterati. The sadness felt by so many people seems to arise from the fact that death came just at the moment of transmutation, just when she was emerging from her feminine mystique throwing off her masochism and her narcissism, becoming outer-directed and sure of herself. As a recovering romantic, she knew what women go through when they look for God in the person of a man. The cruelty of her fate is heightened because she did not die, as so many young idols do, in a flood of excess. Her self-destructive, reactive behaviors were under control. She was getting well. She was healing, as they say. She had found uh, earthy uh, sensuality with this new lover, the kind that makes us forget all about neurotic attachments, yes. Diana was loved uh, because she made all the human mistakes, and she made them in public. However, she was getting it right at last, and when she was crushed by a combination of alcohol, anxiety, and the automobile, her status as victim was enlarged to encompass all modernity, yes, all those killed and maimed by technology, toxins, and tension. Like Jane Austen's Emma, Diana is faultless in spite of all her faults. This is because in an age when the death of the heart is visible on every street corner, she had the guts to love. The psychiatric take was that the grief felt by millions of mourners 
expressed their own existential yearnings. All that iconography was dismissed as, well, they, they said it was more Latin American, not British. Of course, some of us have noticed that WASP countries and WASP cultures are not what they were. They're certainly not British, and certainly they were never pure, and now they're not even simple. Even the House of Lords is under threat. Anyway, the tragedy of mortality is always mitigated by the larger human comedy. The dowdy dignity of the old guard has actually been restored by its awkward efforts to respond to popular feeling. Slowly the royals will be forgiven for their primate grandiosity and their stuffy superiority and their lack of spontaneity. Diana's sons supply the vital human touch. It will be business as usual at the firm. Some poets believe that the only authentic sorrow in human life is the failure to become a saint. Tina Brown writes that Diana, quote, reminds me of Celia Copplestone, the shallow socialite in T.S. Eliot's play, The Cocktail Party. Uh, yes, that character, Celia, is devastated by a love that isn't truly reciprocated, and she surprises everyone in the last act by going off to do humanitarian work in a desolate corner of Africa and becoming a kind of saint. Actually, if I remember the play, she was crucified on an anthill. My own interpretation of Celia is based on her recognition that the married man she imagines she loves is only a very ordinary creature who, she says, begins to look to her very much like a dried-up grasshopper. She comes to recognize that he is not what she is seeking. She is after bigger game. Only God will do. <laughs> yes. She wanted to be a saint. Her death is only incidental. A uh, saint is someone who has ceased to think of herself at all. Once a woman has stopped looking for love, she is free. Free to look with love. Of course, it may be an illusion to believe that we can go into the light. Few are chosen. I wonder if Mother Teresa got there. Whatever you may think of her politics, there is no question about her Christ consciousness. She walked the walk. Many of us were quick to deify Diana. Others rushed to judgment. I heard one opinion in the coffee house comparing her to Ava Perón while insisting that Eva Perón had the edge because she came from poverty and she was illegitimate and she had much more to overcome on her way to the top. Is this thinking? Someone else wrote that Diana was like Wendy in Peter Pan. She was Wendy to a world of lost boys. Now, oh, that's sweet, but I don't buy it. Perception is a prism. Reality is like shot silk. It depends where the light hits. My own thoughts have fragmented and faded. One day I saw the whole thing as a Homeric epic drama. Next day I saw random chance. Mostly I thought of my own two sons. If I had died, 
when they were so young. Would they remember me now? Let's see, when I wrote this piece, they were in their 30s. Now they're in their mid-40s. We've grown old together. (laughs) Mostly, I thought about the theatrical elements, the return to the old religion of the mother. Theater never dies. Only human beings do that. Goddess knows Diana didn't want to die. Even our best thoughts are informed by our emotions. We need so desperately to think well of ourselves. Genuine goodness, I suppose, is what all of us seek. I suppose that's why we wept for Diana. That's the end of the piece that I wrote uh, so long ago, ten years ago. (laughs) I wanted to, yes, I wanted to talk some more about um, uh, Diana and um, the little girl that's incarcerated. And I won't have time. I'm going to send her a copy. Yes, let's send... Miss Hilton, yes, Paris Hilton needs a copy of the book about Princess Diana so she can make a difference. God bless her. This has been Jennifer Stone back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. If you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Goes in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Hello, this is Peter Lauper, inviting you to join me this Sunday and coming Sundays.